0: This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. Book of Acts chapter 16. Um, We'll begin reading from verse 16. Speaking about Paul and Silas. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who he brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. This she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into a prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." Verse 20, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Are you a troublemaker? (laughs) For the right reason, for the biblical reasons. These men were troublemakers, they caused a stir, a sensation. Events in this past few days has caused our country to experience what I would call collective apoplexy. A notable pastor of the largest church in the land denounced the religion of Islam in no uncertain terms. The next day, all hell broke loose. The airwaves crackled and fizzled with cries of outrage apologies were demanded newspaper headlines blazed the controversy their front pages the Muslim community was outraged politicians began to air their views and when the first minister and the deputy first minister exchanged heated words Suddenly, it was no longer just a Northern Ireland thing, it became a global thing. BBC, CCN, Al Jazeera, and many broadcasters around the world reported the event. Panels of pundits were wheeled out to discuss and to debate the issue. Cameras and microphones were pushed into people's faces on the street, asking their opinion of such a thing. Social networking sites went viral like wildfire spreading the word, all because a preacher denounced another religion as evil. I've been saying from this pulpit for years that there would come a day when everything we say will be looked at and ridiculed and challenged and perhaps even in a court of law. This day is upon us. Now, leaving that specific incident aside, because people have their own views on what was said or how it was said, but leaving that aside, I want to challenge our thinking today. We're living in a time when society without question, has become much more multinational, multicultural, and because of that, multi-faith. There's over 80 different nationalities now in Ireland. Nothing wrong with that in itself, but oftentimes new religions come in in the heels of that. And this is what's happened here. And so... In order to accommodate the various religions, we Christians are told that we must be inclusive, we must be tolerant, and we must not, for the sake of diversity, ever challenge somebody's religion or somebody's lifestyle. It doesn't matter how they challenge us, but we must not challenge them. So no matter how unbiblical or offensive it may be to us as Christian believers, we dare not challenge it. And to do so, we are told, is unchristlike, intolerant, bigoted, and judgmental, and goes against, love thy neighbor. That's what we're being told. And so if anybody challenges anybody else's religious views or their lifestyle views... Then you may be accused of being a bigot, a hate monger, and you may actually be charged with a hate crime. This is what it's come to. Now, why do we want to reach men and women for Christ, and why do we want to love them for Christ's sake? We must never ever dilute the word of God, the truth of God's word, to say what's in the Bible. To say what the Bible disagrees with, we must never dilute that. Now, this has got me thinking. And I don't know when this came in, but somehow or other, in the Christian church today, we almost look at Jesus the way the world looks at him. As a man who was so mild, meek, and offensive, Soft-spoken, compassionate, kind, that he would never say boo to a goose. I don't know where we got that from. We certainly didn't get it from the New Testament, as we'll see this morning. Because actually in the Gospels, Jesus challenged the religious conventions of his day. He faced them head on. He particularly fronted up the Pharisees. You don't have to read very far into any of the Gospels to see that Jesus challenged the Pharisees and what they stood for. He called them at sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, hypocrites. At one point, he was so righteously angry, he made a whip of cords in the temple, do you remember? And he kicked over the money changers' tables and he drove them out and called it a den of thieves. Very forceful. Called Herod a fox. Fox is something that's sneaky and crafty. Go tell that fox, Herod. John the Baptist called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's very forceful, isn't it? Not meaty mouthed. The Apostle John, he didn't stand for any niceties when it came to false teachers and false doctrine. And second, John. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, let me just read. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. The Apostle Paul was even stronger than that. In Galatians chapter 1, listen to what he says. Verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Well, there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. Now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's strong language, isn't it? I mean, that's tough, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon said this, I never could believe in the Jesus of some people, for, in the, Christ, for the Christ in whom they believe is simply full of affectionate a and gentleness. Whereas I believe there never was a more splendid specimen of manhood, even in sternness than the Savior. And the very lips which declared that he would not break a bruised reed uttered the most terrible anathemas upon the Pharisees. J.B. Phillips asked the question, speaking about Jesus, why mild? Of all the epithets that could be applied to Christ, this seems one of the least appropriate. Jesus Christ might well be called meek, the sense of being selfless and humble and utterly really devoted to what he considered right, whatever the personal cost, but mild, never. So as far as the religious establishment was concerned, as far as the civil authorities were concerned, as far as the political Herodians were concerned, Jesus was a troublemaker. And what did they do? They crucified him for it. When Jesus said the simple statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Can you imagine how offensive that must have been to the Jews? I mean, they were appalled that he would even dare to say such a thing. But he said it. And do you know what? It still appalls people today. It still appalls people today that we claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Trust me, people get upset about that. Now, let's go back to Acts 16. Any person who is filled with God's Spirit, who is filled with God's Word, who preaches the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ will be seen by someone, someday, somewhere, somehow as a troublemaker. There is a groundswell, unless you've been living on Mars, there's a groundswell, a rising tide against Christianity in Great Britain. And it has seeped into our society. And what happened last week is just the tip of the iceberg. And we're going to see much more of it in the days that lie ahead. Wallace Hendley. I'm going to read this for you. Wallace, Wallace Henley was... He's now a teaching pastor at a Baptist church in Texas. He was an aide in the Nixon White House and congressional chief of staff, and he became uh, a staff writer. He's now a pastor. And he wrote an analysis, which I think is one of the best I've read recently, on what is going on and the trend that is going on that is anti-Christian in the West. i take a moment or two to read this, so listen carefully. I think this is one of the best analyses I've read in a long time. First of all, he begins, and he quotes someone. He says, there is now a serious risk that Christianity will disappear from its biblical heartlands. Now, he's an American writing on the state of Christianity in America, but it applies here. There's now a serious risk that Christianity will disappear from its biblical heartlands. Said a report by the think tank Civitas about persecution of Christians in the Middle East. Ample evidence suggests that there are those who would like Christianity to vanish from the West as well. The Civitas report was entitled Christianophobia. It highlights a fear among oppressive regimes that Christianity is a Western creed which can be used to undermine them. You see that happening, where they're saying, oh, Christianity, that's from the West. And when that starts in here, then they'll be spying on us and they'll change everything about us because it's a Western thing. So that can be used to undermine them according to a report in the London Telegraph, he writes. And any questions, is this a Western creed? The contemporary Western creed is post-Christian and increasingly even anti-Christian. One could hardly classify as Christian a culture with a selfie as the icon before which multitudes worship. Ouch where unbounded sexual engagement is the core sacrament, where the biblical-based family is becoming a museum piece, and where the blood sacrifice is too often onborn children. In fact, as the growing movement to stifle free speech and expression reveals, Western culture would like to get rid of the pesky voice of biblical Christianity altogether. Some nations suppress Christians, their beliefs and their messages violently. Current Western culture, however, has its own style of trying to silence the real church. And it follows a specific sequence which has accelerated in recent years. And then he gives the sequence. He says, the chain moves from characterization to marginalization to vilification to villainization to criminalization and eventually to elimination. One of the easiest ways to discredit someone, an institution or a movement, or an idea, is to caricature it. By making the subject look comical or grotesque, some caricatures are done admiringly and lovingly, like those in theatre playbills or on the walls of New York delis. The other side of characterization comes from spite and anger and hatred, like those the Washington Post's Herblock, Herblock was a political cartoonist. Those like the Washington Post Herblock drew of Richard Nixon. Herblock's most vicious was probably a cartoon of Chuck Colson after he had become a Christian. Or in the way some racist publications depict Barack Obama. The aim of grotesque caricature is to make the subject appear clownish, a bumbling buffoon who should not be taken seriously, or a sinister monster, as we shall see in a moment. Is it not true? That in many, many soaps and programs today, and British television especially, where the vicar or the minister or the pastor is either a nutcase, a crackpot, or is some kind of a pervert. That's deliberate. That is deliberate. An interesting PhD dissertation topic relating to the history of cinema might be the shift in filmmaking from the casual depiction of the church and clergy as noble people out to serve others to now the cliched and formulaic, Bible-thumping, hypocritical fools who only want to exploit people. Then that which is caricatured to the public mind as unserious and irrelevant can easily be marginalized. By the way, this is what Nazi Germany did to the Jews. They started out with propaganda of cartoons, making them into some kind of monsters, making them a laughing stock, and then making them a danger to society. He says, I witnessed the launch of the age of marginalization as a reporter for a large daily newspaper in the 1960s. The anti establishmentarians who became the present establishment pontificated widely on the unimportance of biblical Christianity. From that beginning, marginalization went on to become public policy as the church was sequestered behind a bigger and bigger wall of separation that fenced out the wrong culprit. A regime that might want to create its own religious establishment or one of those godless policies would cause it to throttle a church. Just a wee bit more. Vilification easily follows from marginalization. To vilify is to, fame, to defame and slander. The goal is to shrink respect for the person, the movement, the institution, or the idea that's being vilified. Marginalization says the person, the movement, the institution, or idea deserves only a minimal and peripheral role in culture. In other words, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean a thing. Forget about it. But vilification suggests there are really should be no role at all for the vilified subject. It is nothing to contribute to the great societal conversation. Now the danger mounts and the possibility of persecution looms. What has been merely caricatured, marginalized, and vilified is now villainized. That pesky pesky person, movement, institution, or idea is no longer to be scorned merely, but feared. It is the bad boy on the cultural street ready to trip or assault the noble civilization builders and freedom defenders who gallantly march by. The consensus makers and the contemporary establishments of entertainment, of information, of academia and governance raise national awareness regarding these villains. At this point, there's not enough evidence to send in an armed team to get the villains off the street. He's talking about Christians, by the way. But the cultural SWAT team is standing by. After villainization comes criminalization. And boy, we're at this stage. New laws are written redefining marriage or infringing on the freedom of conscience and practice within the villainous class. That's us. And suddenly there's a smoking gun. Lawsuits stir in the minds of the protectors of the cultural consensus. A Chick-fil-A here, a Hobby Lobby there, that's two American major companies that uphold the precepts of Christianity. And they've come under attack, not only from public, but actually from the government. A pastor refusing to perform a same-sex wedding. A Christian baker refusing to bake for a marriage ceremony not in accord with his faith. Christian B&B keepers who won't accommodate homosexual couples. Elimination logically follows from criminalization. The offenders must be removed for the greater good. In some parts of the world, elimination is of the blatant style. Hang them, gas them, behead them, anything, just eliminate them. But in civilized America, elimination takes a different form. Fire corporate leaders who have gone against political correctness and the establishment line. Dismiss them from the boards, lynch them in the media, anything short of literal blood, just get them out of the way. The church needs to be ready, he says. She must rest in the hope, not like the early church in Rome, she is prepared in the catacombs for greater ministry up in the public square. That was a long reading, but I think the analysis is brilliant. And I think that you can see that unfolding before our very eyes, even even in this society. Mr. Cameron lost heavily in the polls. 16 councils, he lost 198 candidates. And everybody's saying it's because of immigration. His own party members warned him that the Gay marriage thing could finish the Conservative Party. 600,000 people, including most of you, signed a petition against it. You know what he did with it? He binned it. He totally ignored it, and they warned him, do it at your peril, and now he's paying the price. But government knows best. We're an embarrassment. Nick Clegg called us bigots. What happened to the Liberal Party? Slaughtered in the polls. Because not everybody wants it. No matter what government says. And so, these days are upon us. Troublemakers. That's what you lot are to many, many people. Troublemakers. Here are some particular areas where Paul and Silas became troublemakers. We read it in Acts 16. They troubled the spirit world. A spirit of divination was cast out. They troubled the business world. Their masters were losing much profit. How many people know when business people start to lose profit, very often, whatever they think the cause of it, they attack it. And if it happens to be Christianity or your views, they'll attack it. And they did in those days. They troubled the civil world. Paul and Silas was hauled before the authorities. They troubled the legal world. Paul and Silas was brought before the magistrates. They troubled the religious world. These men exceedingly troubled our city. These men, being Jews, exceedingly troubled our city. They troubled the multinational, multicultural world. Said They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or to observe. So suddenly, through one incident, the whole city here in Acts 16, the whole multitude rose up. The business community rose up. The politicians rose up. Everybody rose up for one incident. These are the days we're living in. That was 2,000 years ago. This is the 21st century. The devil hasn't changed, God hasn't changed. The spirit world hasn't changed. They stirred up the spirit world. Now Paul and Silas were not demon-centered. Some people are demon-centered. They were Christ-centered. They weren't demon-centered. I told you before, some people regarding demons are like the man with the hammer. He thinks everything's an eel. But Paul and Silas, they weren't like that. In fact, you saw there, verse 18, where she cried after them many days. These are the servants of the Most High God coming to show us the way of salvation. Well, God's servants doesn't need the devil to just them. And he bore with it for many days until he had enough of it. She just would not go away unless she was dealt with. And I say she, I mean the spirit that was in this young woman. And so he dealt with that. And the spirit world does not like its territory being invaded. And once they invaded the spirit world's territory, all hell broke loose. In Acts 19, just across a few pages, verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man and the evil spirit was, had leapt upon them and overpowered them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and selling their deeds Also many, those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Wonderful change took place in that city. They stirred up the spirit world. They stirred up the secular world. Verse 19 says, Her masters. Verse 19, the marketplace. Verse 22, the multitude rose up against them. Verse 27, the magistrates beat them. Notice how all society got involved here. This is speaking about the workplace, heads of industry, the marketplace, the multitude, the community, the magistrates. The civil authorities, all of them, come in on Paul and Silas like a ton of bricks. Sometimes it may be in your workplace. It may be in your community. Who knows? It may be in your family. Sometimes it's because of your integrity, your honesty, your non-compromising stand, your constant faithfulness, that brands you as a troublemaker. If only you would just compromise a little bit. If only you just tone it down a little bit. But they didn't. And they called them troublemakers. Joseph wouldn't compromise with Potiphar's wife. And that caused a lot of trouble, didn't it? a lot of trouble. He took his stand and he was blackened and he was blamed and he was accused and he ended up in prison for doing the right thing. Moses wouldn't compromise when he became 40. He says, enough's enough. I will no longer from this day be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, that caused a hullabaloo, didn't it? I mean, that caused a stir. Elijah was a troublemaker. In 1 Kings 18, verse 17, you don't need to turn to this. And then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that Jew, O troubler of Israel? He was the troubler of Israel, him and his wife. Well, you see, he blamed it on the preacher. Is that Jew, O troubler of Israel? Elijah had cut the rain off for three and a half years. He was about to cut off the prophets of Baal. Permanently. Spiritual troublemakers often offend those in authority. Governments, politicians. You see that in the story of Haman and Mordecai, because Mordecai was a threat to Haman and to all that he was doing. And whenever Mordecai came to the fore, the plan was to destroy him. It didn't work. We see that in Daniel 5 at Belshazzar's feast and how he saw that writing on the wall. And nobody could read the writing on the wall except Daniel the prophet. And if you read that story, he was not backwards about coming forward. It could have cost him his very life to say what he said, but he said it. This is what the writing is. You've been weighing the balances and you've been found wanting and God's going to strip your kingdom from you. Imagine saying that to King Belshazzar. He could have took his head off. But he was bold enough to say it, wasn't he? They disturbed the religious world. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. We're Romans, they're Jews. We don't believe what they believe and they're troubling us. They stoned the prophets, they crucified Jesus. The preacher of righteousness will always trouble the preachers of religion. Did you hear me? The preachers of righteousness will always trouble the preachers of religion. That old fellow in the pulpit who does not preach the gospel is going to do you no favors. He'll take you to hell. Why does he do that? He doesn't want to offend anybody. He doesn't want to offend his congregation. He doesn't want to offend the business people in his congregation. He doesn't want to offend the big hitters. He doesn't want to offend that counselor there. He doesn't want to offend anybody. And then in comes a young upstart, a young curate or an assistant. (laughs) He's just fresh out of Bible college. He's raring to go. And he gets up and he preaches the gospel. And suddenly he's a troublemaker. He's upsetting everybody in the place. It's time to move him on. A lot of that in this country, by the way. A religious man, he's self-satisfied. He solves his conscience by church going, by committee going, by do-gooding. But let the spiritual man or woman come in to his presence. And he will not like it because he will be challenged to his self-righteousness, his false security, his form of godliness but denies the power. And then see what happens. Today as we speak, there are men, there are women, there are boys, and there are girls in parts of Hindu India, in parts of Buddhist Burma, or Myanmar as it is, in parts of Africa, particularly North Africa, and in Indonesia, and Syria, and Iran, and Muslim nations today. Many of them are facing death sentences. Miriam Ibrahim, It's just been announced today, because of the world outcry, she was going to be given a hundred lashes and then hung because she became a Christian and wanted to marry a Christian. And in Sudan, they threatened to lash her and hang her publicly for that. They said today that she's going to be getting free. But that's not untypical. There are pastors in prison today for no other reason there's churches being burned down sometimes with the people in them for no other reason than they're followers of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. So in 2,000 years, things hasn't changed at all, really. Let me close with these verses. Hebrews eleven thirty-five 35-40. You know it well. You don't even have to turn to it unless you want. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony, through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that, we, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. After 2,000 years, it's still going on. In fact, it's increasing daily for no other reason than you love Jesus and you serve the Lord. You say, I'm a Christian. That's all you've got to do, some of these nations. said a moment ago that, as we close, that Jesus, he could say some of the most hard-hitting things imaginable to the scribes and Pharisees. Part two tonight. I want to continue and I want to look at Jesus and some of the issues he dealt with and some of the people he dealt with and how he dealt with them. No question, whenever the sick came to him or the tormented, the diseased, or the brokenhearted, or whatever, no question about it. He had such compassion and love and mercy for them. But there were others. Boy, he was rough. He really was rough. And he said the hardest things to them. And he challenged their core beliefs. I want to talk about that tonight. Why? Because of what's happened. But not because of what's happened. Because of what's going to happen. Church, we need to wake up. Open our eyes. Don't live in a bubble. It's happening. And it's going to happen more. It'll happen in your workplace. It'll happen in your school. It'll happen in your university. If not already, it's happening. So we need to understand and be prepared and to know And get away from this notion that Jesus was only soft spoken, compassionate, and kind, and he was all of those things. But let me tell you, he could be really, really tough. Really, really tough. He could say the most hardest things. He condemned some people outright, forthright, in front of everybody. So get away from this one sided view of the Lord that somehow we have grown up with. Maybe it's because of our Sunday school. uh, You know, we we try to teach our children about Jesus being lovely and kind and gentle and so forth. is all those things. But as adults, we need to see the other side. We need to see the other side. To toughen us up. Because otherwise we're being accused of being unkind and unloving and intolerant and judgmental and all of this stuff, and love thy neighbor, and he just goes on and goes on until you just say nothing to anybody because you may offend somebody. But what about the truth? It doesn't mean that we have to be go out of our way to be really, really nasty with people for the sake of it. But when it comes to defending the word of God and truth, sometimes you just have to take a stand and let the chips fall with a lie, amen? amen? Part two tonight, don't miss it. Let's see how Jesus dealt with some issues. Lord, we are living in challenging days. When everything this book stands for is being challenged and we're told it's irrelevant that it has no bearing in modern life, that we're relics of a past age, But Lord, your word stands forever. It never changes. And it's still as powerful today as ever it was. And yes, it can still change lives like never before. But Lord, it can so upset so many people like never before. Help us, Lord, to understand this. To know who we are and know what we believe. That Christ may be magnified and glorified that his word may be stood for, that righteousness may prevail in the name of Jesus. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk You'll also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira